zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Great Muppet Caper, released June 26, 1981. It was written by Tom Patchett, Jay Tarsus, Jerry Jewell, and Jack Rose, directed by Jim Henson, and released by Universal Pictures and Associated Film Distribution. Do you put the emphasis on Muppet? You say the Great Muppet Caper, or do you say the Great Muppet Caper? I'm I'm with you on this one, Richard. It's the you put caper. it on Caper. Yeah, the Great Muppet Caper. That's how great I say Muppet it. Caper. Wait, now that sounds wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! What have you done? The Great Muppet Caper. What did I say? I you don't said know. what I said. Okay. Emphasis on Muppet. Maybe you were just too emphasised. <laughs> Whatever, guys. <laughs> we'll let the listeners decide. Jim Henson is probably the world's most famous puppeteer or Muppeteer. Creator of the Muppets, Fraggles, Dark Crystal, and Labyrinth characters. He started building puppets in high school, which eventually developed into a short-form comedy series called Sam and Friends. Right out of college, he and his wife Jane employed their puppet characters, starting with an early design of Kermit the Frog, in a collection of experimental films, and even commercials, from products like Wilkins Coffee and my personal favorite, LaChoy Noodles. <laughs> we went to a retrospective of Henson's full catalog of commercials at the silent movie theater before they shut it down, and Delbert the LaChoy Dragon is forever my all-time favorite Muppet. I didn't but know he had a name. He does. It only appears in some marketing material. It's never mentioned in the commercials. Oh, okay. The whole premise of the campaign is that they advertise the noodles as having been cooked with real dragon fire, and Delbert would breathe fire on the can, but he was also too large of a puppet for the kitchen set. So as he's opening the cabinets, he's ripping the doors off and his huge tail is just knocking the windows out of their frames and uh, he just completely demolishes the kitchen. There was a black and white one too where he's just ruining a grocery store <laughs> and he's like tipping over the aisles and just sweeping all the shelves clean with his tail. After that, the Hensons began their most famous Muppet project, partnering with children's educational program Sesame Street, which has run continuously from 1969 to today. The Muppets were also intended to be a permanent fixture of NBC's Saturday Night Live, but only made appearances in the first season in a recurring segment called The Land of Gorch. At the end of the 75 season, they were dropped from SNL and shot two television pilots, The Muppets Valentine Show and The Muppet Show Sex and Violence, but ABC was not interested in picking up a full Muppets series order. Enter British producer Lou Grade, a man of taste, who quickly snapped up the option and agreed to produce a Muppets series for Associated Television, a British broadcaster, but it was aired in first-run syndication in the U.S. It was here that popular characters Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, and Gonzo were added to the Muppet stable, and the team moved to Elstree Studios in the U.K. for their own variety show entitled The Muppet Show, which ran for five years and garnered 21 Emmy nominations, taking home four, including Outstanding Variety Series in 1978. At the height of its popularity in 79, The Muppet Movie was released by Lou Grade's Associated Film Distribution that told the origin story of the variety show's beloved performers and on an $8 million budget brought in a whopping $65 million, making a sequel inevitable. Sadly, The Muppet Show had come to a close a month prior to the release of The Great Muppet Caper, 
Earlier the same year, Universal had acquired domestic distribution rights from AFD. Sadly, this film did not repeat the box office successes of the Muppet movie, though it did make double its budget back. Really? Yeah, it didn't do as well. That's such a shame. I think this is by far the superior Muppet movie. I think that people were expecting it to be more of the Muppets variety show, which is what the first movie was. Yeah. And it was something very different. It and is so different. It but caught I people like off it, guard. I, I, I like this better than that. In I think, my opinion. I think they're both great. I think they have strengths and weaknesses, each of them. Okay. Its failure was blamed on the fact that the show was still in heavy syndication, and if audiences wanted to see Kermit, he was on their TV at home already. Mm. Others blame the title for including the word caper, but that seems a far less likely culprit to me. I don't know mm-hmm. why like the word caper like is so bad. Caper? Because yeah. of, like, capers? Like, they don't <laughs> like the food? Yeah, exactly. It's too salty. <laughs> Do you remember when we did uh, that? Uh, we did our Muppet Marathon. We did a we Muppet had... Marathon, and we themed all the food like the movies. Yeah. And we just had, like, a bowl of capers out. <laughs> yep, that was for the second movie. The first movie, <laughs> we had a bowl them. of Skittles for the Rainbow Connection. <laughs> uh, what else did we have? Uh, we had hot dogs for... Muppets Take Manhattan. Yeah. We had Eggnog for The Christmas Carol. Yeah. <laughs> what did we have for Muppets in Space or Muppet Treasure Island? I don't remember. Oh, Muppets in Space, we had Tang, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, that's yeah. a good one. <laughs> I don't remember what we had for to theme for... Pirate's Booty? Oh, it probably I guess, was. Actually, yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> Jim Henson disliked the working title, Muppet Mania, and opened up title pitches to the entire Henson studio. Submissions included... The Rocky Muppet Picture Show, <laughs> A Froggy Day in London, and the winning title from 19-year-old Lisa Henson, daughter of Jim, who suggested The Great Muppet Capade, with alternative options Muppet Escapade, Muppet Epspigade, and The Great Muppet Caper. Well, they picked the best one of those. I think so, yeah. <laughs> the general plot was actually a combination of two scripts, The Muppets Hit the Road, from new writing team Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus, and The Good, The Bad, and The Muppets from Jerry Jewell and Jack Rose, the writers of the first film. I actually think that's a better title, too. I think so, too. <laughs> Composer Joe Raposo was nominated for the Best Original Song Oscar for The First Time It Happens, which, together with our previous theme song, For Your Eyes Only, lost to Arthur's theme. When you get caught between the moon and New York City. Which is a better song. Mm. Mm. It is. No. That's one of the weaknesses I have to say about this movie. The songs are not as good as the Muppet movie songs. Correct. Because Paul Williams is a better songwriter than Joe Raposo. And I like Joe Raposo. Okay. I don't dislike these songs, though. No, I, I don't either. I like them a lot. Right. So I, I'm not, yes, I agree that the Paul Williams songs are probably better. But that doesn't mean that these aren't great. No, I agree. I agree. We open with Animal's Head in the middle of a parody of the MGM Lion facade for Lou Grade Productions. Immediately, Animal is chewing the set to pieces and the camera pushes through the hole in the center to reveal a hot air balloon high in the clouds. Riding in the balloon are Kermit, Fozzie, and Gonzo, who offer meta-commentary on the opening titles. Fozzie worries aloud that the balloon might be blown out to sea and they'll be lost forever. Nothing's gonna happen. This is just the opening credits. Gonzo's having the most fun of the three and wishes he could try it without the balloon. Try what? Plummeting? Yeah! I suppose you could try it once. I think it's kind of interesting because, so this time around... I made our kids sit down and watch it with me. Yeah. Uh, and so I got a fr- fresh perspective on the movie because, you know, I've been watching it since as long as I can remember. And they were just really confused by this whole bit. Like, why are they talking about the credits? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, because it's funny. Well, they're are you young li- for meta. Are you listening to these lines? They're yeah. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gonzo seems worried when so many writers' names show up, which is usually a bad sign. Apparently, when they were shooting this, the uh, they had a bit of an accident, and when they crash-landed the hot air balloon, the fuzzy Muppet caught on fire. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> so that's he got, horrifying. He got burned pretty bad. <laughs> but uh, one of their Muppet builders, Amy Van Gilder, was able to fix it, so she gets a on-screen credit for Muppet Doctor for Aww. rescuing Fozzie. I'm still alive, just very, very badly, badly burned. <laughs> they pull a cord on the balloon to begin their descent, and it crashes down on a New York-ish back lot street corner to kick off the opening number, Hey, a Movie. Most of the other performers in the song are human, except for Sweetums and a cart full of talking vegetables. A man carrying Gonzo on a box is hit by a car, and Sweetums runs to check on everybody, but falls down a manhole. How come all of the cars don't have windshields? Uh, it must be a reflective thing. They didn't want to see the cameras in the reflections. I mean, did you guys notice that? I didn't or, notice yeah. it. Oh, I was like, that car doesn't have a windshield. And the next car was like, that car also does not have a windshield. Yeah, I mean, I know that a lot of the time when you're shooting through the windshield at people in a car that you don't use a windshield. And so maybe they were just using those cars for this scene and mm. didn't bother to put the windshields in. Fozzie shouts for the song to pause so that Kermit can deliver some important exposition. Hold it! Go ahead, Kermit. Thank you. See, in this film, me and Fozzie play crack investigative reporters for the Daily Chronicle. And Gonzo, he's our photographer. And it's going to be terrific. Do you recall the last time our two lead characters were crack investigative reporters with a photographer assistant? Superman 2? That's correct. (laughs) A car passes by and suddenly the Muppets are dressed as the reporters they claim to be. As the song continues, Charles Grodin, apparently posing as a blind man, suddenly appears and contributes an ominous line to the song. Hey, wow, it's gonna be terrific, starring everybody! And me. His villainous nature is hammered home when Sweetums emerges from the manhole and Grodin, as Nicky Holiday, steps on his hand. Kermit says they need a great story for the paper, and Gonzo offers to photograph a chicken that escaped a box in the car accident, while behind them, a woman emerges from a jewelry store and is immediately robbed by a man in a cat burglar costume. I just love the way, love the way Charles Grodin just slaps like the door, the doorman just smacks him across the face. <laughs> I feel like as a kid, I never really noticed that stuff. Like I know that you're supposed to n- actually notice the the, jewel the stuff going heist on in the background, on, but I'm always like, just where's pay- that chicken at? Just paying attention to the Muppets. That's funny. <laughs> like, the thief jumps into a Lotus Esprit Turbo to speed away from the scene. Do you guys recall the last movie we saw with the 1981 Lotus Esprit Turbo? No. Oh, well, then it would be For Your Eyes Only. That's correct. I, I was thinking it was Cannonball Run. No. <laughs> well, there was a Lotus Esprit in that movie also, but it was not an 81. But that was the same model car that Luigi was killed in, in the most recent Super Mario Brothers game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so confused now. <laughs> The robbery victim, played by Diana Rigg, the short-time wife of James Bond, rushes back into the jewelry store, not coincidentally named Bond Jewelry. Across the street, Gonzo finally gets a decent picture of the chicken, apparently having missed all the excitement behind them. The getaway car has caused several more accidents, and now a man drops a box of dynamite into the manhole, which rockets debris into the air around a still-singing Sweetums. Gonzo takes a photo of the end of their dance number, and we cut to that photo on the front page of the Chronicle, under the headline, Identical Twins Join Chronicle Staff. The date on the front page reads, Wednesday, August 27th, 1980 blank. Because whoever printed out this prop newspaper didn't decide on a year for the release. <laughs> this copy of the paper is in the hands of editor Mike Tarkanian, played by Jack Warden, 
who is furious that they missed the robbery story on the front page of all the competing papers. Every time he slams his fist on his desk, he seems to inadvertently launch something into the air. The third or fourth time, Gonzo is launched into the air, where he catches on a hanging light fixture. Uh, gee, Mr. Tarkanian, when we thought identical twins working on a newspaper would make an interesting story. Yeah. Well, it doesn't. Especially since you two guys don't look anything alike. Uh, well, that's because Fozzie's not wearing his hat. Uh, Fozzie, put your hat back on. Oh, yes, sir. See? Oh, yeah. I can see it now. But that's still no excuse for blowing a story. <laughs> he says he only hired them because their father was a close friend, and we get an insert of a framed photo of Jack Warden with a weird Kermit Fozzie <laughs> hybrid with a green bear head and Kermit eyes and Kermit collar. Oh, my God. This picture cracks me up so bad. That's I, so I'm great. pretty sure they didn't even make this puppet. Like, it looks like just a Photoshop. Yeah. Ignoring Tarkanian's anger, Fozzie asks for a raise on their first day on the job and instead learns that they are already being fired from the position. I like the detail that he's tucking the picture of their father into the desk drawer so that he doesn't have to see them get fired. <laughs> Kermit pleads for one more chance, offering to head to London to follow up on the robbery in exchange for airfare, but Tarkanian points to Kermit and tells Fozzie to find their own way there. I'm Fozzie! Oh yeah, yeah, the hat. <laughs> Before they leave, Gonzo shouts, stop the presses, but admits that he didn't have a reason. He just always wanted to yell that. Which, have you ever seen the movie The Paper with Michael Keaton and uh, Robert Duvall? No. Randy Quaid. It's, it's a good group of people, but there's a scene in that where they do the stop the presses thing where they, they literally run into the machine room and shout stop the presses to stop it. And I, I think one of them even says, I always wanted to say that after they end up doing it. Mm. As Gonzo is yelling that, by the way, you can see Frank Oz standing in the background. Our protagonists board a flight in the luggage cabin inside boxes labeled frog, bear, and whatever. Fozzie wonders where the flight attendants are. Uh, they don't serve food in ninth class. What? $12 and you don't even get a meal? A member of the flight crew enters to inform that they are reaching their stop. Oh great, the plane is landing! Uh, the plane? Ah, oh, the plane lands in Italy! You land in England! Wah -ha -ha. Wah -ha -ha. Wah -ha -ha. Come in! One at a time, he tosses the pet crates out of the side of the plane. We cut to England below, where all three boxes land in the middle of a pond, right in front of character actor Robert Morley for his short cameo. When he informs them that they've landed in Great Britain, Fozzie asks for directions to England. They also ask for directions to a free place to stay, and from his list, they seem interested in the Happiness Hotel. Just sounds the nicest. I just like that the way he says uh, places to park your carcasses. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's such a great way to say it. It just reminds me, too, of uh, when we were watching Oh, Heavenly Dog last year, and you were like, who is that guy? That's the guy sitting by the pond in yeah, <laughs> the Great the, Muppet Caper. His voice is so memorable. I like. I just think the way he talks, I'm like, I would pick him out of any crowd. Yeah. <laughs> I was just impressed with how quickly you connected it to this exact scene because he has like four lines here. Well, yeah. There's just some people that you will remember. Well, it's kind of like me with John Hausman. I oh, mean, every he'll, time? He'll always be America's favorite old fart. <laughs> right, yeah. We cut to the Muppets riding a double-decker bus around London. We see their bus crossing Tower Bridge, and Gonzo takes a photo of the Thames. But what's cool about this shot is that it's super wide with a telephoto lens, and you can see the flash of Gonzo's camera on the bus, and I don't think it was added in post. I think they had a giant flash go off on the bus, and they just timed it so that it fit the voiceover here. As the bus passes the Happiness Hotel, Fozzie, Kermit, and Gonzo are again tossed from their ride without the vehicle stopping. 
The Muppets push their way into the hotel lobby and wake Pops, the man at the front desk, who is shocked to hear that someone intends to check into their shabby establishment. He announces the new guests and kicks off the Happiness Hotel song that has begun every episode of our podcast this season. <laughs> That's my fault. <laughs> You're like, what's, what's, our, what's our theme music going to be this year? And I'm like, I gotcha. <laughs> it's got to start with something musical. Oh, there's no fire in the fireplace. There's no carpet on the floor. Don't try to order dinner. There's no kitchen anymore. But if the road been kind of bumpy and you need to rest a spell, well, welcome home to Happiness Hotel. When Pops lists the payment options, they opt for sneaking out in the middle of the night without paying. Very popular choice. A row of bellhop rats carry their luggage. Among the guests here are Dr. Teeth and the entire Electric Mayhem band, who contribute their verse to the song. Kermit notices in the middle of the song that the band's drummer looks upset, and they claim that he missed the Rembrandt exhibit, and he corrects them. Oh, he's just upset about missing the Rembrandt exhibit, the National Gallery. Renoir! For whatever reason, Rembrandt is swapped out for Monet on the album version of the song. Hmm. Oh, he's just upset about missing the Monet exhibit at the National Gallery. Janice from the band gets to break the seal on Muppets using expletives in the lyrics. Feels the management, he's cheerful, though the whole joint's gone to hell. Oh, welcome At the end of the song, Sam the Eagle makes a brief appearance to announce that his fellow guests are all weirdos before returning to his room. <laughs> Uh, that's not the also like not the most risque thing Janice will say. No, yeah, <laughs> she gets a couple later. lines here. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's why she's my spirit animal. She's not an animal. Sorry, she's, animal's an animal. She's a she's allegory an ab- of Janice Joplin. <laughs> sure. I don't know, but she's but she's one of the humanoid Muppets. She's mm-hmm. not a she's not supposed to be like humans are animals. All right. If she's not a plant or a fungi, <laughs> I would say she's an animal. Fine. Up in their room, they get ready for bed, planning to seek out Lady Holiday the following morning. Once they're all settled in their Murphy bed, it folds up into the wall. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone folded up in a Murphy bed? Um, Little Miss Marker? That is correct. We cut to Lady Holiday's office the next day. She describes her robbery to someone over the phone while she makes alterations to the dresses and haircuts of a pack of models. She tears a sleeve off, cuts off a lock of hair, and then empties an inkwell on another. Holiday moves through the room, ripping all her designs to pieces, apparently offending the models wearing them, even though technically she's being critical of her own work, not, yeah. not the models in particular. Well, to be fair, though, the one that she cut the hair off of, I think that that was a little extreme. Right, but I think that's something that models are prepared for happening. I don't think so. I mean, your hair would be part of your livelihood as a model. And part of your livelihood is working for the best designer in the country. Like, she's walking up and doing an adjustment, then it's like, oh, I just got the most expensive haircut in the world. Thank you. Yes. Yes, Lady Holiday? We have to make drastic changes in the new line before the show tomorrow. All my girls are going around looking like barnyard animals. Good heavens, who are you? is Miss Piggy, and I would like to be a high-fashion model. Doesn't surprise me. Seems to be the way we're heading. Miss Piggy shows off her portfolio, and it's a lot of the same photo with just the dresses and hair swapped out. Miss Piggy insists that she won't take anything less than a modeling job, and is ecstatic when she's offered a receptionist gig. Lady Holiday fills Miss Piggy in on an upcoming lunch appointment with her brother Nicky. 
She includes a lot of superfluous details about Nikki squandering his inheritance and even suggests that he's the type who might try to steal her jewels. It's in this speech that we learn the pride of her collection is the fabulous baseball diamond. Why are you telling me all this? It's plot exposition. It has to go somewhere. Anyway. Lady Holiday steps out of her office and apparently trusts Miss Piggy in the room alone. Miss Piggy takes a seat at Holiday's desk, excited to have a job here, and we cut to the last three models that Lady Holiday was hassling, Marla, Carla, and Darla, as they're leaving the office for the day. Darla asks her cohorts what they plan to wear to the robbery, just as the elevator doors open, and Kermit, Fozzie, and Gonzo enter the office. Do you notice that in this scene, the hats they're wearing have hat pins in them that have their initials on them? I did not notice that. Gonzo is instantly in love with Darla and tries to snap photos of the trio as the elevator doors close on his nose. Kermit leaves his friends to find Lady Holiday alone and overhears a delivery person bringing her brother Nicky a gross of flowered socks. This is the first time I've noticed that line. And then, you know, of course, then every single shot throughout the whole rest of the movie where we see the the, the brightly colored socks was and like, he's wearing, yeah. I, I never noticed that delivery at this, at this point. Did you notice his office door? Oh, yeah, something parasite. Yeah, uh, yeah. Under his name, it says irresponsible parasite, yes. which is how Lady Holiday described him specifically. He's second in command here, and he's an irresponsible parasite. When he enters the office, Kermit finds Miss Piggy standing on Holiday's desk, giving an acceptance speech facing away from him. She's startled by his appearance and falls off the desk into a wastebasket. When Kermit mistakes her for the real Holiday, she is too flattered to correct him. She seems immediately in love the first time she sees him, and animated birds fly around his head. Do you guys recall the last time we saw animated birds fly around a live-action character? Yes. It's nine to five? That's correct. Kermit offers to collect her for dinner tonight to discuss the robbery. When he asks her address, she makes him guess it. Probably some highbrow street somewhere? Highbrow street! Absolutely right! Highbrow street! How did you guess? Are you psychic? But now guess what number? He also manages to guess the number 17 on his first try. On their way back to the hotel, they are unable to hail a taxi until Gonzo jumps into the road in front of one. The driver, Beauregard, happens to also live at the hotel and requires their directions since he doesn't know how to get there. He asks what room they're staying in. Well, I, I don't know. We're on the second floor. Oh, I'm sorry. I can only take you as far as the lobby. It's my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> Beauregard drives right through the double doors of the hotel into the lobby, and after they exit the taxi, he asks for directions to leave, even though he said he was coming here. Do you recall the last time a car crashed into a hotel lobby? Richard? The Cannonball Run? Yes! Oh, yeah! Because <laughs> the brakes were out, right? Yeah. Kermit suggests a U-turn, and Beauregard drives right through the wall into the hotel kitchen and beyond. The Swedish chef stumbles out of the demolished kitchen with a pot of pasta, with a steering wheel floating in it. Fozzie almost announces Kermit's date tonight to the room, but Kermit shushes him, so he only tells Pops, who proceeds to tell everyone. Up in their room, Fozzie is under the impression that they're both going on the date together, but Kermit thinks he should go alone, kicking off another dance number, stepping out with a star, which is not my favorite of the film, but it has one of the best sight gags, where Kermit does a bit of tap dancing, and we can see the shadow of his full body dancing behind him, but then when he stops and turns, the shadow continues dancing. It's so great. <laughs> Apparently this shot took 43 takes to pull off, because they couldn't get a way that you could see what you were doing, so they just had to time it right that they were moving at the same way wow. in the beginning of the shot. 
At the end of the song, Fozzie guilts Kermit into inviting him on the date, and then Fozzie turns to invite everybody else. You know what's amazing about this movie and shots like that is like everything is done practically. Like I know. This, none of these things are visual effects, and it's just amazing how much thought went into these practical shots. I mean, a lot of it's like traditional magic, really. I mean, the the way that you have to do something directly in front of the audience. And I think it comes from a place of you know, they, they came from humble beginnings with with the, the shows that they were doing for, for public television and, you know, the Muppets and or Sesame Street. And when you when you come up in this world and you have to you have to do things on the cheap and you have to do things practically and you, you don't have any choices like it just you just have a different mindset. Right. You know, and so when they come into this, it's just like, well, why? Well, why would we? Why would we do this with like a green screen and a and, and mat it out and stuff? Like, why don't we just shoot it that way? Yeah, I think that this movie, like some of the later Muppet movies, lost some of that and they did things yeah. in a different way. But this movie especially stands out for that because there's a lot of shots where they're really tricky about having. Like what when you're seeing just legs and they're puppeted from above and you're seeing no legs and they're they're puppeted from below and you're seeing a close up. But somebody in the background is full body, but they're not really moving, but they have a mechanical head, you know, like. But then there's also a little bit of cheating here, which we didn't even see in the Muppet movie. In what way? Uh, We have animatronic heads occasionally here, which we didn't have last time. But I think that they're really strategic about how they use it because you're always, they're almost always in the background of a shot or they're a really short shot and they combine it with a real one next. Like it's very thoughtful that they are not sort of a front and center thing that they're, you know, how, how they're making these work. In the first movie, one of the most famous, like famously difficult shots um, aside from bicycle stuff, is the shot of Kermit on the log in the middle of this pond. Yeah. And the way they did it was they built this huge tank that they put under the water mm-hmm. for the performer to be in while he's operating the puppet. But in this movie, they're just robots on the boxes in the pond. There were no people out there. And so anytime they're talking, it's just... Yeah, bye, and, bye, and, bye, you bye, can, bye. and you can see it when you're really focused on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that they do a really good job of most of the time you're not focused on it and as a kid i never noticed that stuff that's true we cut to the exterior of 17 highbrow street an apparently real address in this universe (laughs) miss piggy approaches and we move inside where we see an older couple played by john cleese and joan sanderson who are almost 30 years apart in age but cleese's hair was grayed up for the scene they're having a painfully boring conversation when the wife dorcas hears miss piggy outside she asks Neville what's making that sound, and he nonchalantly replies that a pig is climbing the building. <laughs> His performance here is amazing. Uh, actually, I, I, I feel like John Cleese was underused in this whole sequence. I disagree. I think that his performance is so perfect because it's so... Understated. Under, yes! It's so great because you expect somebody to make make a huge reaction to this, and he has, like, no reaction, which is so much better. They quickly change the subject. Dorcas mentions offhand that she hasn't left the house in 12 years. Uh, well, the weather's been most disappointing now. <laughs> I just like, it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you, it's a good thing you haven't been outside for the last more than a decade. I feel like that's the way it is now anyways. It's... Yeah. She insists that she has no reason not to go out since their children have moved out, the pets have died, and the butler's been dismissed. A frog finger rings their doorbell. Before answering it, Neville asks Dorcas to confirm that their butler is dead. 
No, no, no. The pets are dead. The butler's been discharged. Ah. When the bell keeps ringing, Miss Piggy offers to answer it. Kermit asks if he can come in to check the place out, and Miss Piggy barely hesitates before inviting him into the home. (laughs) She claims that Neville is her butler, and he asks if he can help them in any way, when she asks him to recommend a restaurant. He suggests the Dubani Club, but immediately second-guesses himself, as Dubani is more of a supper club, but they take the suggestion. When Dorcas appears to ask what's up, he relays the scene and his recommendation. That's more of a supper club than a restaurant. Yes, well, I try to tell them that. Don't blame yourself. The Happiness Hotel's open-top, double-decker bus waits at the curb to transport them. It's loaded with all the guests from the hotel. Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem are jamming out on the top of the bus. They don't have to play this loud! Oh, that's okay. They don't mind. We cut to the Dubani Club, which resembles in almost every way Club Obi-Wan from the start of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Kermit gasps when he sees that the roast beef costs the price of an Oldsmobile, which at the time cost the equivalent of $21,000 in 2022 money. I think he's exaggerating because then he asks Gonzo for... $1,500 for the whole meal or something like that. When Piggy, still posing as Lady Holiday, orders the champagne caviar, Gonzo is dispatched as a club photographer to cover the cost of their meal by charging for the photos of other club members. The first table he heads to is occupied by a couple played by cameos, from Jim Henson and Amy Van Gilder, the Muppet doctor who rescued Hmm. Fozzie Bear. She was also an early Muppet designer and later Muppeteer for the shows. Lady Holiday and her brother Nicky, the return of Charles Grodin's character, enter the club. We haven't seen him since that opening song. The Mater D compliments Holiday's diamond necklace, and she claims that Nicky insisted she wear it tonight. Gonzo approaches another table, but the man shoos him away, insisting his wife isn't feeling well. Oh, that's too bad. Maybe she should be at home. My wife is at home. Yes! Next table! At another booth, Holiday complains that wearing these jewels makes her feel as though thieves are breathing down her neck, and Nikki leans to deliver a breathy line right at her neck. These aren't breathing down your neck. I want to put them in a safe. No. Yes. Yes, I meant yes. Why would I say no when I meant yes? She asks Nikki to go see Stanley, whoever that is, but he runs into a back office area. This movie, for me, was, for a very long time, the sum total of all Charles Grodin that I knew. Yeah. Mm. You know, I mean, I guess... Maybe at some point you'd throw like Beethoven movies in there, and and that was about it. And so like, I like he was so creepy to me because of things like this that I always just like he just gave me you know gave me the creeps. I think what makes me like him so much is like the childlike nature of everything that he does in mm-hmm. in all movies. Like he does these weird, he has these instincts that are so childlike. But like here, the way he delivers that line. Thieves are not breathing down your neck. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like such a weird way to like swallow the line as you're saying it, but also emphasize the breathing you're doing as yeah. you say it. Yeah. I think I have a new appreciation for him in this role, yeah. having seen him in other things now. And yeah. I'm just like, he's he's doing such a great job. Well, after the really upsetting performance in Catch-22. Oh, my God. Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, God, no. <laughs> A car pulls up at the club's rear entrance, and Carla, Marla, and Darla get out in extravagant coats. Together, they move around the club, keeping an eye on the jewels. The band strikes into Raposo's Oscar-nominated original song as Kermit and Miss Piggy slow dance. First time you see her, no bolt from the blue. Just something so quiet, that's waiting for you. 
On a key change, the entire dance floor becomes a musical number with a dozen male dancers in top and tails singing around and lifting Miss Piggy into the air. Lady Holiday is perplexed about how her receptionist has won over the entire club, including her brother, Nicky. She's sensational. 45 words a minute about Adam. Which still puts her ahead of Martin Mull's attractive secretary from Serial, but he didn't mind. You know, Stella, I seldom speak more than 40 words a minute. Does she say 45 or 25? 45. I heard 25. I, I have the I have a transcript of the script. It's not an official script, but it says forty five. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then I misheard it. I was like twenty five, so that was actually pretty slow. <laughs> well, I thought the joke is supposed to be that forty five is slow. Yeah. Piggy even gets a little tap number and dances the last bit of the song with Nikki himself. At the end, the lights go out, and we see an insert of Holiday's necklace being slipped from her neck just as Gonzo takes a picture at their table. Nikki makes a big show of being the real victim because she screamed in his ear when it happened and startled him. What do you want me to do? I spilled ketchup all over my cummerbund. Kermit realizes in the commotion that Miss Piggy is in fact not Lady Holiday, and she sneaks out of the club, leaving behind a single glass slipper. Gonzo informs Kermit that they may have a picture of the thief. In a dark room, we see Gonzo, Fozzie, and Kermit developing the photos from the club. Suddenly, Pops is pounding on the door, and we realize that this dark room was set up in the Happiness Hotel bathroom. They see in one of Gonzo's negatives that Nikki is removing the necklace and handing it to the models behind Lady Holiday. I think it would have been funnier if we didn't realize until they mentioned that it was a bathroom that you see that they're doing this in a toilet. Oh, God. <laughs> processing the film. Just then, the rest of the guests bust into the room and ruin all the negatives. The, the thing that bothers me about this scene is that that's not how you do, mm-hmm. that's not how you develop film. Yeah. The negatives would have already been processed at Correct. this point. Yeah. Well, so, maybe they're processing the negatives here. Right, but you do that in a sealed container because you, you can't expose them to light. and You have to have them finish processing before you take them out. So even the red light would have destroyed them? You you literally have to be in a completely dark room when, okay. you, when you load the canister with the negative film. And then you pour the chemicals into the, into mm-hmm. the sealed ca- canister. And, you know, you finish the processing before you take them out. Because they make it look like they're processing the negatives and not it d- the It does prints. look like they're processing the negatives. And if you were to expose that... Before, be before it was done processing, it would be destroyed. But the red should be destroying it already because they're not in a complete. Yeah, but he's world. putting it down like on a down shooter. But that's yeah. what you would do after the negative is done right. being processed. Right. So yeah. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It, it, if anything, it would have just ruined the, the photograph, the print. Yeah. yeah the negative it wasn't a print. Yeah. He was doing the things you do to make a print, but it was making the negative, which doesn't yeah, make without sense. Without finishing it. Yeah. See, that, to, to your point. It would have been better had they been developing in the toilet and someone flushes it or something. And then that's how they... It's like, well, I still have the negatives flush. (laughs) Oh, maybe I don't. But I do love the effect, though, of they break through the door because everybody's got to go to the bathroom and then the negative turns black. Like, it's just like, it's just a really cinematic moment. Yeah, it looks great. We cut to Kermit sitting despondent at a duck pond. A passing girl mistakes him for a bear. Look, Dad, there's a bear. No, Christine, that's a frog. Bears wear hats. The man is puppeteer Jerry Nelson, who provides a dozen major voices in this film, and his daughter is his real-life daughter, Christine Nelson, who would sadly pass away just over a year later after a lifetime battle with cystic fibrosis. Kermit clutches Piggy's glass slipper in his lap, and he's joined by a tramp, played by Columbo himself, Peter Falk. He thinks he knows Kermit's whole story just from seeing him. I know exactly what happened to you. What? 
Well, I tell you, friend, what happened was you and your brother-in-law, Bernie, you cashed in your stock certificates and your insurance policy, and you went out and bought a dry cleaning establishment. Huh? The Tramp concocts a whole drama about competing dry cleaners and backstabbing business partners, and Kermit waits until the very end of the story to let him know that he's gotten every single detail wrong. The man prepares to hazard a second guess until Kermit interrupts him. Well, how about this? I hate to be rude, but uh, we're, we're trying to do a movie here. The man switches gears and offers Kermit a watch from a bundle in his coat pocket, but Kermit turns him down. Just then, Kermit hears Miss Piggy in the park, having just thrown a man in the pond for allegedly touching her uninvited. He tells Miss Piggy that her dance partner from the club is in fact the jewel thief, but she accuses him of being jealous. Kermit tries to walk away, and she begs him to stay until Kermit is forced to break character and accuse Miss Piggy of overacting. They argue until Miss Piggy is in tears. Piggy, I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, we gotta get back to the movie, though. All right. <laughs> I, I just love like how it, it almost gets to like domestic violence. You want to walk? Go ahead, walk. Yeah. Walk, just walk. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the line too, where she's like, "Well, you know, Mike, you don't know about my career." And he's like, "I know your career, pig." <laughs> It's just like, yikes. We cut to Kermit and Miss Piggy on a bike ride through the park, hearkening back to the famous scene from the first film, the first ever reveal of Kermit's full body in motion. They get a little fancier this time, allowing the characters to ride in overlapping loops around each other. Kermit even rides balanced on one foot on his bicycle seat, past Statler and Waldorf on a park bench. Look, Ma! No brains! (laughs) The trick gets orders of magnitude cooler, when suddenly the characters, free from the control of any puppeteers, are able to sing in time with the song, while in the background, dozens more Muppets on bikes come down the path to join them. Presumably the heads on the free singing Muppets are animatronics or remote controlled by puppeteers off camera. Backstage at the fashion show, the models are in a tizzy. Nikki finds Miss Piggy backstage and tries to talk her into a modeling career, which she was already pursuing. When she tries to get away, he gets surprisingly physical with her, only releasing her when Kermit shows up. But Kermit mistakes their embrace for a relationship that he's interrupting. After Kermit leaves, she makes it clear that she's interested in the frog. The models try to talk Nikki out of his obsession with Miss Piggy because she is the fall girl in their whole plan. During the show, the conspiring models give each other covert winks. Backstage again, one of the models, Marla, fakes a leg injury, and Nikki demands Miss Piggy take her place on the runway. The show transitions to the swimsuit portion, and Statler and Waldorf are ready for it. Hey, Waldorf, wake up! Here come the bikinis! Oh boy, we better synchronize our pacemakers! Lady Holiday is shocked to see Miss Piggy on the runway, but the audience seems to sense nothing is amiss. I'm a little bothered in this scene that she's not wearing the same version of, was it Marla or Darla? When she hurt herself? When she hurt herself. She's not wearing the same swimsuit. Isn't the whole point to go on with the same outfit so well, she you just, complete she the line? She can't just have her pig nips hanging out. She's got to wear clothing that fits oh, I her. I would assume that you would have several different sizes on hand of your thing just in case you had to switch out a model, you know? But like, <laughs> I don't think they expected Marla to shrink Well, what's to the half point of height? putting somebody on that, that like isn't representing the outfit? Like, Maybe they made this dress to scale once and then so they just uh, they gave her a small scale dress that was technically designed by Miss Holiday. Well, I would just assume since they had planned to make Miss Piggy the fall, that they would have they would have to have an outfit ready for her. That's true. Yeah, but why isn't it the same, same one dress, that yeah. she's wearing? Because just that's, a different size. What's the point of putting a model on 
if you're not going to show off the thing that would be missing from the show? Well, you need to put someone out there just so that you're not embarrassing her by having an empty runway. I guess. You know what? You're right, Jesse. This movie's garbage. <laughs> no, 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 no. Take it all back. Never mind. Forget, forget my flaw in logic here. The crowd breaks into rabid applause, as everyone does, at the glorious sight of Miss Piggy in her element. We push into her face and dissolve to an Esther Williams synchronized swimming number. Frank Oz had to get scuba certified to operate the Miss Piggy puppet for this sequence and spent most of a week underwater on set. It's insane. Like, you know, some of these shots of her underwater, I'm like, that must have been so incredibly difficult to frame and stay out of view and to like also they're all brand new puppets because they have to be waterproof also Mm -hmm. they have to be able to communicate with frank underwater so they are having all kinds of communication issues because the radio wasn't working well and like i would imagine that he has to control his breathing so there's a bunch of bubbles coming up behind her right 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 it's just crazy yeah there was a lot a lot to this one this is definitely the most complicated part of the film the number includes a sparklers on a headpiece playing in reverse out of the water moment, not unlike what we saw in Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1 Inquisition segment. Oh, Fine. That was my yeah. do you remember the last time. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we used it as a do you remember the next time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Touche. <laughs> the song, entitled Piggy's Fantasy, includes vocals from Kermit and Grodin, dubbed over in an operatic soprano voice, but the song ends when we realize Piggy has imagined most of it even as she walked off the end of the runway into a water feature. Is it him singing? No. No, it's not actually him. The, oh, okay. they, they intentionally, she makes the point. Yeah, she oh. makes the point of calling it out. You can't even sing. You were dubbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it kind of sounds like it could be him hamming it up. No, I don't think so. Okay. We see Nikki stuff these stolen diamonds into Piggy's coat pocket before returning it to her. She quickly finds the necklace in her pocket, but immediately announces that it isn't hers. Can I ask, though... What was the plan? Because I can't imagine that the plan was for her to have a fantasy that results in her stepping off into a fountain and requiring a coat to be put on her to have the jewels put in it. I assume that he was just supposed to find her coat backstage with Mm -hmm. the necklace in it. Mm. But when he saw her fall off, he's like, oh, now I can look like I'm just being supportive and give it to her. And then when she digs it out of her pocket, she's like, these aren't mine. And... As they're handed back to Lady Holiday, she sees that the diamonds have all been stripped from the piece, and Piggy realizes here that Kermit was right and that Nikki is trying to frame her. You know what? You can't even sing! Your voice was dubbed! Kermit promises to get her out of this mess, even as the police drag her away. Holiday is interviewed by the press and announces that her fabulous baseball diamond will be going on permanent display soon at the Mallory Gallery. Backstage, Nikki and the models discuss their plans to intercept the baseball diamond, But Gonzo conveniently hears this from a hiding place under a nearby table. But then he actually explains it, and his explanation makes perfect sense. I was doing a little photographic essay on kneecaps. (laughs) He's gathered what should be plenty of information, Tuesday midnight at the Mallory Gallery, and shares it with the other guests crowded into their room at the Happiness Hotel. Suddenly, all the Muppets are talking over each other for a while, until everyone but Janice stops. Mother, it's my life, okay? So if I want to live on a beach and walk around naked... Kermit points out that to free Piggy, they'll have to catch the thieves red-handed. Yes, Bo? What color are their hands now? (laughs) He's the best character. (laughs) Kermit spells out exactly how dangerous their mission is, and then everybody backs out, except for Fozzie. Shame on you! He talks everybody back into the mission, pointing out that the bad guys just can't be allowed to win. It just can't happen. 
Sam the Eagle leans into the room to express his patriotism. At times like this, I am proud to be an American. It's like most of these people are are not Americans. I would though. say, well, I don't know. They, none of them have accents, but they are living in the At least UK. Beauregard says he's lived here his entire life. That's true. And we can only assume where New Zealand is from. Yeah. Germany. <laughs> what? Just as the group breaks from their plan to save the day, the Murphy bed they're all standing on folds into the wall again with Muppet legs poking out <laughs> in every direction. And the light bulb, the running gag of the light bulb just, <laughs> just falling. falling out. <laughs> in the prison, Miss Piggy is notified that her lawyer is here to see her. She finds Kermit in a fake mustache since they wouldn't let anyone but her attorney come to see her. He tells her that they have a plan to catch the criminals red-handed. What color are their hands now? I don't think this is the time for that type of humor. She refers to the prison as the big house multiple times, which we'll see on a laundry truck later, but which also shows up in the 2014 Muppet sequel, Muppets Most Wanted. They share a kiss and the mustache switches faces. <laughs> but I just love the, the line, you got mesh marks on your face. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to Nikki and the models running a checklist before the big job. The Muppets perform their own nonsensical checklist, but they don't seem to have any of the supplies mentioned. Back in the prison, Miss Piggy bends open the bars on her cell, <laughs> not content to wait for Kermit to clear her name in just a few hours. I, I like that her cellmates are like, go for it! And she's just <laughs> like, Nikki and team appear outside the Mallory Gallery and use a grappling hook to scale the side of it. But every part of this, like from them packing to getting to the gallery and getting in like it's all like cut back and forth just to, to show like the ridiculous uh contrast contrast yeah contrast between the two of how the muppets basically have nothing and they don't have their shit together like yeah. they're just like they didn't do anything right and these guys are super technical like, yeah they're all dressed up right they have they have lasers and yeah all their gear looks super high tech and they're doing everything carefully and quietly and like the muppets are the exact opposite yeah. it's just great the baseline to a lot of the heisty parts of this movie remind me of perry grip's boogie hedgehog song oh yeah yeah are you getting that, that? yes all the muppets pull up outside the gallery in groucho glasses kermit asks for a blowtorch to cut through the gate but New Zealand offers a less helpful substitute. I got some paper towels. Floyd Pepper from the Electric Mayhem suggests hot mustard might eat through the bars, but the word eat inspires Kermit, an animal is called forward to chew their way in. That's all right, we'll just chew our way out of here, Wang. <laughs> That's from Big Trouble in Little China. Although animals seems perfectly capable of biting through the gate, they are scared away by guards with dogs. Miss Piggy stops a lorry driver to ask if he can point her in the direction of the fabulous baseball diamond. Amazingly, this random passerby, played by Peter Ustinov, knows exactly what she's talking about. Well, funnily enough, I do. It's at the Mallory Gallery, a virtually impregnable fortress, many miles from here. When he refuses to give her a ride, she drags him out of the cab and tosses him into a pile of trash cans on the side of the road. Out of one of the cans emerges Oscar the Grouch. What are you doing here? A very brief cameo. Me too. So, my entire life, you know, I know a couple of the people in this movie, obviously. Right. You know, I still have no idea who this guy is, and he's the only one who actually says he is doing a cameo, and I have no clue who he is. Peter Ustinov. Peter but what is he from? Charlie Chan and the yeah. Curse of the Dragon Queen. Uh, okay. He played Charlie Chan in that movie. 
That's the only thing we've seen him in so what far. What else has he done? Like, why Stuff would I, you didn't care about in the late I 70s. Know him? <laughs> I don't think you would. I think this was for your parents, not for you. Well, yeah, but I feel like since then, I know a little bit more about actors and movies. You've and never I heard of Charles Grodin. You've never heard of John Cleese. <laughs> no, he's definitely, I would say for our generation, he's the more obscure person because he didn't do a lot of high profile work in the 80s. Yeah. I would say this is probably his best known American performance. Okay. In the 80s, I'm saying. Not ever. I'm not saying Peter Ustinov is famous for his Muppet cameo. <laughs> well, for me, he is. <laughs> yeah. Just like Robert Morley. Like, you don't know yeah. him from other things. No. I, I think these people were really famous to Jim Henson because Jim Henson lived for five years in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I'm going to get these character actors that I see all the time. But to an American audience, they're not super famous. The burglars use some kind of a laser tool to cut open the window into the gallery Miss Piggy jumps on the lorry's CB to check with nearby truckers about police presence. She gets the all-clear, negatory on the Smokies. Back at the gallery gate, Kermit and Fozzie are posing as employees of Pizza Twins, here with a delivery order. They've gone to the trouble of designing a logo for buttons and a pizza box. They convince the gate man that his name is on the order, even though he hates pepperoni. But I hate pepperoni! I'll eat it! <laughs> I like that Fozzie is <laughs> offering to eat the pizza they delivered. Henderson, the gate man, opens the gate and then asks to see the slip with his name. He repeatedly asks for the slip, while the rest of the Muppets sneak into the gallery behind him, and I wanted someone here to make a joke about giving him the slip, but it never happens. Fozzie suggests that he could accept the pizza and feed it to the dogs. We cut away to Piggy running out of gas, and then back to the gallery yard just as the dogs are finishing up the pizza and all the Muppets are chased up a rain gutter to the roof. I love this rain gutter sequence. It's of great. them climbing? Yeah, yeah, it's really great. Well, yeah. because it's preceded by like, well, how on earth are we going to get up? Because the only way in, they figure, is the roof. They're like, well, how are we going to get up there? And like instantly the dogs yeah. are barking and then they're just like, Whoop! straight up the wall. Straight up. <laughs> Miss Piggy thinks all hope is lost when a stunt team's truck drives by and accidentally dumps a stunt cycle out the back. Bright pink, complete with helmet, jacket, and gloves. Kermit guesses that the windows over the gallery might be connected to the security system, and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew advises his cohort, Beaker, to test it. When Beaker touches the window frame with a screwdriver, his eyes light up with the sound of crackling electricity. Inside, Nikki's team deactivate the security, while on the roof, Beaker gets all the credit for doing it. Animal yanks open the window, and the huge pane of glass smashes all the invading Muppets. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> From above, they can see the baseball diamond, appropriately seated in a glove, but it's a long way down. Maybe we could jump part way. Okay, maybe that's my favorite line. That's possible. <laughs> the Muppets watch from above as the burglars enter the exhibit, and Kermit makes a third comment about catching them red-handed. For some reason, it's Beauregard's turn again to ask what color their hands are now. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally, this would have been either Beauregard all three times or a different Muppet each time, yeah. like maybe Gonzo here. Really, all they need is for Gonzo to take some pictures of this happening, and they've caught them red-handed. That's what catching someone red-handed means. You have photographs of Well, they've of already them. done it, though, and that failed. Right, because they screwed up before. They, they've learned a lesson, I would hope. Again, Lou offers the paper towels as a prospective plan. <laughs> the Muppets form a Muppet chain leading down to the baseball diamond as the thieves release it from its display case. The Muppets all fall into the room from above and start tossing the baseball diamond around like an actual baseball. Scooter is even seen distributing cups of popcorn, just as he did in the theater scene that begins the previous Muppet movie, The Muppet Movie. I don't like that he describes it as red-hot popcorn. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no thank you. What, what does that even mean? 
Lou Zealand swings a fish like a bat, and Beaker is up to pitch. Lou hits a pop fly, and the frog goes for the fly. Ball. <laughs> but it's caught just over his head by Nikki. He explains to the rest of the Muppets that Kermit is now his hostage, but just as he turns around, a stunt cycle comes crashing through a stained glass window, and Miss Piggy dives in slow motion through fluttering shards of glass to tackle Nikki to the floor of the gallery. Nikki seems to be knocked unconscious, and Miss Piggy karate chops the crap out of all the other burglar models. Do you recall the last time that we had a vehicle crash through a stained glass window to interrupt proceedings? Uh, fooling around yeah, yeah. <laughs> when a hang glider came through a window a to interrupt a wedding oh this is the greatest moment ever yeah <laughs> watch that movie fooling around <laughs> gary Busey. you don't have to it's okay cloris leachman annette o'toole mm. who was it that played cloris leachman's father or all the way also no tony randall was the, the butler. butler right yes madam <laughs> <laughs> Nikki comes to on the floor and grabs his gun, but it's too late. The guards have entered the gallery, and we see all the criminals being loaded into police cars. Before he's locked up, Nikki confesses to Miss Piggy that he really did love her. I knew. We could have had the world on a silver platter. That silver's turned to iron bars, Nikki. We dissolve to a Daily Chronicle headline, which reads, Twins and pig foil heist. Thieves caught red-handed. Which I think is a missed opportunity. I think it should have said, Twin reporters rehired at the Chronicle. Yeah. The date of the paper is still somehow August 27th, implying the events of the film have taken place in less than a day, and two issues of the paper have been sent out at that time. Though this time a year is specified, so maybe an entire year has passed. The paper is being read by Statler and Waldorf on a plane, and the camera drifts below the plane's floor to the ninth class compartment. The Muppets are happy that the Chronicle has paid their way back to America, and they are thrown out of the plane again, this time with parachutes, for a reprise of the Hey A Movie number that started the film. And that's the end of our film. The Great Muppet Caper, everyone. Well, except at the very end, Gonzo comes out and takes your picture. I definitely watched that part, so I remember when that happened. <laughs> yeah, all the credits were. I waited till the very end to mm -hmm. watch that last part, and it was funny because Addie walked into the room and like he snapped the picture. She's like, "Oh, I wasn't making the right face." <laughs> <laughs> Did she say that? Yeah. That's that's Addie for you. <laughs> yeah, this movie's really fun. Um, like I said before, I preferred the songs from the Muppet movie, and I find that when I watch that movie, I'm singing them for weeks afterwards. The only yeah. one here that I catch myself singing all the time is "Hey, a movie." And then everything after that is kind of like, they, they sound like real musical songs. They don't sound like Muppet songs yeah. specifically. I mean, I agree. I, I, I agree with you on that. But I still think that if I were to order the Muppet movies, this is number one for yeah. me. That's number two. And then I think you actually have to go to the Muppets to get my number three. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. See, for me, I think my number one is actually uh, a Christmas Carol. I think that goes into slot number three or four for me. I think Christmas yeah. Carol, Muppet Movie, The Muppets, and then Great Muppet Caper for me. Yeah. At the very bottom of the list is The Muppets Take Manhattan. No, Manhattan. Well, no, Muppets from Space. Yeah, Mu I Manhattan will watch, is above space. No, I will yeah. watch Space over Muppets Taking Manhattan. Really? Space is a TV movie. It's like, fine. It's no. fine. The Muppets Take Manhattan is bad. <laughs> and we're just not even going to mention uh, the Muppet Treasure Island. I actually kind of like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I was going to say, what's no, wrong with Muppet Treasure Island? Nothing, but we're all leaving it off of our lists well, for some reason. Well, it's, it's, it's in the middle. It's in the middle. It's, but Tim Curry keeps it on the high end of the middle. Mm -hmm. I've probably said it before on the show, but my favorite joke ever from <laughs> my friend John is when we were watching Treasure Planet and he walked and he's like, 
I like this movie better the first time when it was called Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> there's a movie before that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, it's fun. And I like that they actually found something for almost every Muppet that I care about to do. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first movie that Ratso gets to do stuff in. He was on the show before, but he didn't appear in the Muppet movie. Yeah. But... You know, we get a very brief moment with with uh, Bunsen and Beaker, mm-hmm. and New Zealand gets some lines. Yeah, uh, Scooter gets to do some stuff. Like everybody really got to do something, which is fun. Um, I feel like um, what's his name from uh, the Electric Mayhem? Uh, not not Doctor Teeth, but uh, Janice. No, the the secondary male lead. Zoot. Floyd Pepper gets more to do here mm. than usual because mm. usually Dr. Teeth is taking the lead for the band, mm-hmm. but Floyd Pepper has more lines than him in this one. I guess Teeth does mostly singing. But yeah, it's fun. And I love Sweetums, so I'm glad that Sweetums got to be a part of at least that first number Yeah, uh, if he wasn't going to appear in the rest of the movie. But no place for the Latroid dragon, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he's a corporate mascot. <laughs> but uh, he was also like the, the Latroid dragon informed how they would uh, puppeteer big bird yeah that was their was, first full body costume right i was gonna say it's the same it's the same style yeah it's big bird which i think frank oz was in there and he fucking hated it at the start he was the latroy dragon oh, body okay. and and he complained about how they did it so they so he definitely wasn't big bird no they handed that mm. off to what carol carol Spinet. spiny spiny yeah. uh i was talking i can't it was before this but i was talking to my niece about the muppets and she was trying to ask me about one of the muppets and i was like running through all the names of the Muppets. she was impressed that you knew the names of Muppets? I was impressed that I knew all the names. (laughs) She didn't care. Yeah, I was like, like, gosh, I know an awful lot of Muppet names. (laughs) That's funny. As you should, Richard. But yeah, definitely thumbs up for me, obviously. Oh, yes, of course. Um, Do we know where this is going letterboxed for you guys? Yes. Where's this going, It is going in a clear number two spot. Is it? It is. Okay. Absolutely. It is just below Raiders and above. I don't even remember what's in number three. Dragon Slayer. Oh, Dragon Slayer is third. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Richard, what do you think in Letterboxd? Uh, I have it at number five. Okay. So that puts it below Thief, but above Dragon Slayer. All right. Um, so you both have it right above Dragon Slayer. Mm-hmm. I have it. I like this movie. I like this movie. Are oh, we no. getting a divorce? <laughs> it's in 14. So not terrible, considering number 15 is my favorite all right, movie a of all time. separation agreement. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 14 puts it just under History of the World Part 1, so I have my Esther Williams musical numbers uh, in a row there, Uh, and that's just above The Howling. Was there more that we wanted to talk about the movie? Uh, I mean, no. All all the things I wanted to say were probably more in general of the Muppets as a whole, uh, because the Muppets were... We're big in my life, as as all of us. Muppet babies. It was sad to see them die when, uh, when Disney tried to make TV shows out of them. Well, yeah. yeah. But also, I didn't watch that stuff. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> none like, of that but happened. But, you know, the, 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 the Muppets, like that movie was good. Yeah. And then Muppets Most Bought was not good. And then the TV show was not good. Uh, so it's been kind of a steady decline for them. But we could just ignore everything after that. It's I'm fine. sure we'll get another great movie in 15 years. Yeah, it, it yeah, I think it needs a good reboot. They also need to find someone who can do the traditional Kermit voice because I think when they were recasting Kermit for after Whitmer's time, yeah, that they kind of went with, oh, you know what? We're looking for someone who can get the hand gestures right, and we're less concerned about the voice. And it's like, 
I think you need to be more concerned about the voice because that's how people identify Kermit is the voice. And I, I, not that the, the handwork isn't important, but I, I don't think it's necessary to reinvent the wheel on the Kermit voice because it's a voice that people know really well mm-hmm. and have known for 50 years now. I, I feel like Kermit, Piggy, Fozzie, like the, all those voices for those characters are pretty, pretty like known. Yeah. And they're also not voices that people can't replicate. Like, I'm not saying that it isn't difficult, but I, but I've heard people do a Kermit impression that I would be like, if that was in a movie or a TV show, I would accept that that was Kermit's voice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, yeah, you find that person and maybe you train them up for a while. But I th- they're trying to do the thing that they do with Mickey Mouse where they're like, oh, this is a new incarnation of Mickey Mouse so he can sound completely different and people will just put up with it because it's a new Mickey Mouse. And it's like, yeah, but they didn't, he doesn't look different though. That, well, that, he looks that was, the same. That was going to be exactly my point. It's like you can't reinvent the character and have it look exactly the same because what right. they did with the mickey mouse cartoons is it stylistically it just lives in a different world right and so it's a and i'm okay it's easier to take yeah yeah, yeah i'm t- i love those new mickey mouse shorts they're great um but because disney it, just doesn't want to get stuck in a situation where they have to pay the same voice actor season after season and give them raises all the time they want to be able to fire everyone on a whim sure but i still feel like then then you need to reinvent the whole of Muppets. Right. Like, it's it's either new And that's going to have a much bigger backlash. Y- yeah, it is. But I think, yeah, give it some time. Start over. It'll be fine. Yeah. Our director here was Jim Henson. The great Muppet caper marked the feature film directorial debut for the Muppet creator and performer. This was his only Muppet movie that he directed by himself. Hmm. So I think he may have co-directed a, a follow-up, one of the sequels, but this is the only one that just has Jim Henson's name on it. Writer Tom Patchett played one of the air stewards that uh, throws them off the plane, either the guy in London or the guy over America. He was a writer on Buffalo Bill with Dabney Coleman, as well as the Bob Newhart show and ALF, which he created. Mm. Ah, makes of, sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I loved ALF. Of the two scripts combined to make this film, he and Jay Tarsus co-wrote Muppets Hit the Road. Jay Tarsus played the other air steward, so whichever one played at the beginning is the opposite of the other one. Uh, he was Coach Finstock in the first Teen Wolf movie. He also wrote Up the Academy last season. Oh, God. Muppets Take Manhattan and the first Short Circuit, though he is uncredited in that, alongside hmm. our credited friend Brent Maddock. Writer Jerry Jewell also wrote for The Muppet Show. He wrote The Muppet Movie before this, and later The Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppet Treasure Island, and Muppets from Space. Of the two scripts combined to make this film, he and Jack Rose co-wrote The Good, The Bad, and The Muppets. Jack Rose has lots of credits for feature screenplays dating back to the late 40s. Not much I recognized except Sorrowful Jones in 49, which was one of the previous incarnations of the Little Miss Marker story that we reviewed. Maybe that's where he got the Murphy bed Mm, joke. Yeah. He also has writing credits on the 28th Academy Awards before this, and his only credits after this film were for writing the 54th, 55th, and 56th Academy Awards. (laughs) Producer Lord Lou Grade was a producer of the Muppets Variety Series. He's memorialized in the character of Lou Zealand, but also in Orson Welles' Lou Lord character in the Muppet movie. So far on the show, he has produced Saturn III, Raise the Titanic, and The Legend of the Lone Ranger, and he comes back to produce Dark Crystal for director Frank Oz. Music came from Joe Raposo. This is his last Muppet movie that he provided music and lyrics for. He did a lot of early Muppet composing in the 70s and 779 episodes of The Electric Company, The Ropers. He was integral to Sesame Street musically since its 1969 premiere, 
and contributed the show's classic theme song, Can You Tell Me How to Get How to Get to Sesame Street. He also wrote C is for Cookie and Rubber Ducky and all those classic Sesame Street tunes. They changed the song, though. They did, but he wrote that first song, and lots of his music is still used on the show. Yeah. I don't I don't know I, why they changed it. I don't like the new version. I don't either. Did he write one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Probably. ten, eleven, twelve? <laughs> Actually, that's an old Arab song. With the lyrics, anyway. Because they're Arabic. Yeah, I got you. He also composed Altman's Nashville. That's an interesting choice. Cinematographer Oswald Morris. Uh, he was the DP for Moulin Rouge, Moby Dick, Guns in the Navarone, Lolita, Oliver, Sleuth, Man with the Golden Gun, and The Wiz. We saw his work in our first episode, Just Tell Me What You Want, and this was his second to last title, followed by The Dark Crystal. Editor Ralph Kemplin. He edited African Queen and The 52 Moulin Rouge. He edited Oliver, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Day of the Jackal, The Omen, Uncredited, and this was also his second to last credit before The Dark Crystal. Jim Henson did the voice of Kermit the Frog, Rolf, Dr. Teeth, Swedish Chef, Waldorf, The Muppet Newsman, Zeke, Man Having Snapshot in Restaurant, which was his live action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's the founder of the Henson Company. He's the original voices of Kermit and Ernie. He's the creator of The Muppets and Sesame Street. He also died fairly young. He was 53 when he very suddenly developed a bacterial infection and overnight began coughing up blood and quickly went into organ failure. The official cause of death was streptococcus pneumonia from toxic shock syndrome. Depressingly, his hesitation to be driven to the hospital even a few hours earlier may have cost him his life. I feel like I use Jim Henson as the no we're gonna go get this checked out example like yeah. you know it's, he's probably saved a lot of lives people who know that story yeah. yeah but i'm just like you know people who ever hesitate i'm like don't you want to just like go get this checked out like don't don't be yeah. like that <laughs> you know how many more muppet movies we would have if people went to the hospital yeah but he was coughing up blood more than 24 hours before he died and that's how long it took him to get to a hospital yeah well you're doctor reluctant so that's true but when i see blood you do nothing. I do nothing. <laughs> Frank Oz did the voices of Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Sam the Eagle, Gramps, and the Swedish Chef. He probably has the most credits outside the Muppet universe and the regular uh, Muppet crew. He directed The Dark Crystal, the next Muppet movie, Muppets Take Manhattan, Little Shop of Horrors, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, What About Bob, Indian in the Cupboard, Bowfinger, and remakes of The Stepford Wives and Death at a Funeral. He also directed season four, episode six of Leverage, The Carnival Job. <laughs> Did you work on that? Uh, four? Or was that God. season five that you worked on? I, I thought it was four and five. I don't remember what season I was there. We saw him in the Blues Brothers last season, and he's back later this season with a cameo in Landis's next film, An American Werewolf in London. But he's probably best known for the Miss Piggy voice, which is also the Yoda voice, <laughs> which we heard in Empire Strikes Back last season. Dave Goles does the voice of The Great Gonzo, Beauregard, Zoot, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, and Lubbock Lou. He's lots of Muppets. He's everything Gonzo. He voices Sir Didymus in The Labyrinth. Nice. Jerry Nelson was Floyd Pepper and Pops and Lou Zealand and Crazy Harry and Louis Kaziger and Slim Wilson and the CB voice of the trucker and the man in park who said, no, that's a frog, bears wear hats. Uh, that was his own daughter. And like I said before, he's just done... Lots and lots of Muppet characters over the course of his career. Richard Hunt is the voice of Scooter, Statler, Sweetums, Janice, Beaker, Bubba Monster, uncredited, apparently, and Cab Driver, uncredited. Who would be the cab driver other than Beauregard? Do we hear another cab driver in this movie? Um, There was a cab driver in the opening number. Oh, okay. 
He's a regular puppeteer with credits in all the major Muppet stuff. Charles Grodin played Nicky Holiday. He and Jack Warden appeared together in the 78 Heaven Can Wait. He appears with the Muppets again as the antagonist of TV special The Muppets at Walt Disney World. His first IMDb listing is an uncredited role as Drummer Boy in 1954's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He's in Rosemary's Baby, The Heartbreak Kid. We covered his work in Catch-22, It's My Turn, Seems Like Old Times, and The Incredible Shrinking Woman. He also appears in Ishtar, Midnight Run, The Beethoven Movies, Clifford, So I Married an Axe Murderer, and Hearts and Souls, which I love. Uh, one of his last credits was as an amusing doctor character on Louis C.K.'s FX series, but we just lost him in May of last year. Yeah, I love Midnight Run so much. Yeah. He and Robert De Niro are great in that film. I, I just love his chemistry with uh, Martin Short and Clifford, too. Like, it's basically just another uh, Beethoven movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's just the dog can talk this time. But it's so funny. Clifford doesn't talk. Clifford is a child played yeah. by Martin Short. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking not, it was another dog. dog. No. I was <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> Leaving that all in. No. <laughs> You're thinking of it as a big red dog movie, and they're just like, we're just going to get the guy from the other dog movie. <laughs> Diana Rigg was Lady Holiday. She was Emma Peel in the 65 Avengers on television. We just saw her tombstone at the start of last week's For Your Eyes Only from when she was married to super spy James Bond as played in her film by George Lazenby. She was also Olena Tyrell in Game of Thrones. Tell Cersei. I wanted to know it was me. She also just showed up as Miss Collins in Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. And then she passed away right after that. Or did yeah. she pass away before the movie came out even? Yeah, because the movie only came out this yeah. year. John Cleese played Neville. John Cleese appeared with Joan Sanderson, who plays his wife here in Faulty Towers episode Communication Problems. And it's apparently a favorite. I haven't caught up on that series, but people like it a lot. He's a member of the Monty Python cast. He shows up in A Fish Called Wanda, European Vacation. Amazingly, this is the first time we're seeing him in the 80s, but he's back later this season as Robin Hood in Time Bandits. We also just mentioned that he took over for Desmond Llewellyn's quartermaster role halfway through Brosnan's run as Bond. Although he, he's never called Q. He's just called he's R. Called R yeah. He's serving the same purpose in, in Die Another yeah, Day. It's like someone didn't know what the Q was supposed to mean. Yeah, it's like, no, it's not just a letter that gets yeah. updated like hurricanes or something. <laughs> Robert Morley played British Gentleman. The part was originally offered to Trevor Howard, who we saw in Sea Wolves, as Jack Cartwright, entire onshore rescue and first aid team. He was Reverend Samuel Sayer in The African Queen, Roderick Femme in The Old Dark House, and King Louis XVI in Marie Antoinette. Do you guys recall the last time we saw King Louis XVI? History of the World? Part. I, I don't know. You got me. Part one. He looked like the piss boy. We also saw Morley in Oh Heavenly Dog last season. Peter Ustinov played the truck driver. We saw him earlier this season as Charlie Chan facing off against the Dragon Queen, but he also showed up during the 1981 Oscar ceremony presenting the Best Adapted Screenplay Award. Ustinov and John Cleese both made appearances on the original Muppet show as well. Ustinov is also in Spartacus and other things. Logan's Run. Logan's Run. He's an old man. He's the old man. <laughs> Jack Warden was Mike Tarkanian. Warden was Henson's first choice, but they also considered Jim Backus, Tom Bosley, Jackie Cooper, which would have been funny to have yeah. immediately after Superman playing no, basically the same great. character. Uh, Hume Cronin, David Doyle, Charles Durning, Broderick Crawford, Ed Asner, Martin Balsam, Harvey Corman, Walter Matthau, Jack Klugman, Jack Lemon, and Lionel Stander. 
God, I would love like almost all of those yeah, guys to I be would, in this movie. I can see. I don't. I don't necessarily see Walter Matthau as like the asshole editor type. I can see Jack Lemmon doing it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Martin Balsam would be great. Uh, Harvey Corman can obviously get very hilariously angry. So I, I like a lot of these choices, and they, they are all definitely they saw each other in in casting calls for sure. We saw Warden in used cars last season. He's also a juror in Twelve Angry Men. He's Big Ben in the Problem Child films and Pops in Dirty Work, starring the late Norm MacDonald and directed by the late Bob Saget. Steve Whitmer played Rizzo the Rat and Lips. He took over as the Kermit voice eventually and as the Ernie voice on Sesame Street. He's also Robbie Sinclair on Dinosaurs. That's the son, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Louise Gold was a Muppet performer, Annie Sue Pig and Lou. Uh, just dozens of Muppet programs as various characters. Catherine Mullen was Muppet performer, Chickens, Gaffer the Cat. Uh, she's Kira the Gelfling in The Dark Crystal. Camilla in The Muppet Movie. That's Gonzo's chicken, chicken. Uh, lover, lover <laughs> which is why he was so interested in chickens at the beginning of this film, I guess. Uh, she's also the voice of Allegra in Allegra's Window and Moki on Fraggle Rock. Bob Payne was is credited as Muppet Performer. He's the historian scroll keeper in The Dark Crystal. Brian Meal, credited as Muppet Performer, appears in a bunch of Muppet stuff as just one-off characters. Mike Quinn, another Muppet Performer, was Neen Num or Nine Num, do you know? Oh, yeah, Neen Num. Uh, he's a Lando's co-pilot on the, in, on the attack on the Death Star in Return and of the Jedi. How do you say it? I think it's Neen Nyub. Because it's spelled N-U-M-B. Nyum or Nyumb. I'm embarrassed that I am not if I'm not pronouncing it right. Nyumb in the Star Wars sequel trilogy. He's in all three of the sequel trilogy, mm-hmm. and he's also in Return of the Jedi, um, and obviously a bunch of assorted Muppet roles. Robbie Barnett is another Muppet performer who played a Wheeler in Return to Oz, a mystic numerologist in Dark Crystal. Brian Henson is credited as a Muppet performer. This is only his third credit. He's the son of Jim. He's Hoggle in the Labyrinth. He's Jack Pumpkinhead in Return to Oz. He's the host of the adult-themed Muppet improv show Puppet Up and the current chairman of the Henson Company. And we've seen Puppet Up a couple times now. Yeah, so great. Carol Spiney, is it Spiney? Yeah. Uh, was Oscar the Grouch's voice because he obviously provides the voice of Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird. Um, he's probably better known as Big Bird. He, he's been Big Bird in everything that's featured Big Bird, mm-hmm. really. Uh, Michael Robbins played the security guard that didn't order pizza. He was Ainsley Jarvis in The Pink Panther Strikes Again. Peter Hughes played the maitre d' at the Chobani Club. Chobani? (laughs) Dubani. Peter Hughes played the maitre d' at the Dubani Club. He was also Franco in Evita. Chai Lee played the fourth model. She was just one of the girls at the pool in For Your Eyes Only last week. Susan Backliney played Charky's Water Ballet Performer. We just mentioned her in our minisode on The Silent Scream, where she was replaced by Barbara Steele as Victoria after she was scarred by an allergic reaction to facial prosthetics. She's credited as Polar Bear Woman in 1941, but she's probably best known as Chrissy, the first victim of Bruce the Shark in Jaws. Denise Potter played Charky's Water Ballet Performer. Uh, she was also a nun in History of the World Part 1, which makes sense. She's a part of both oh, singing performances. That makes a lot of sense. In fact, I bet most of All these, of these it, it's are just, the same it's people the that same did that. group, yeah. yeah. Peter Falk played the tramp. He was the grandfather in The Princess Bride. He's Columbo on Columbo and Sam Diamond in Murder by Death. Danny John Jules played a street dancer. He was Assad in Blade 2 and a doo-wop singer in Little Shop of Horrors. He provides the voice of Fiery 3 and 4 in Labyrinth. Kathy Monroe is a cyclist and singer with the Muppets. 
She was in Empire Strikes Back. She was Zuckus Weokettle. I think that's two characters. She played Zuckus and Weokettle. She's also a hotel worker in The Shining, a punk dancer in The Monster Club, and later this season she's back as a champagne dancer in Ragtime. Eric Romare played the old gentleman in the park. Eric Romare is in this, the <laughs> French New Wave director of films like Claire's Knee, My Night at Mods, and Pauline at the Beach. He was also an editor of Cahiers de Cinema from 57 to 63. Do you guys recall the last time we brought up Cahiers de Cinema, the French New Wave film magazine? Uh, Willie and Phil? No, more no. recently than that. Polly Esther. Mm. Francine Fishpaw is reading an issue in the lobby of Tab Hunter's fancy drive-in theater. Thick Wilson <laughs> played produce vendor on Main Street. He's the one with all the talking vegetables. Uh, he plays a gourmand in The Dark Crystal. He's Mr. Brady in Tommy Boy. And we saw him as the mayor in Mirror Cracked with that giant mayor necklace. And I remember saying that Thick Wilson is the perfect name for this guy because <laughs> he's a big old round guy. Um, but yeah, Thick Wilson shows up again. Uh, those are all the credits I have for this one. I don't know. It, it, we kind of talked about the Henson company a little bit, things that they've done. Yeah. Uh, I After mean, Jim's passing, the siblings kind of took over. So, yeah. Um, I think Lisa is the president and CEO, and Jim is the chairman of the company. But the studio still exists. And yeah. they still uh, do most of the creative decisions for... Um, I, I think they're still involved in the creative decisions of, of the, the actual Muppets, even though Disney owns the rights to the characters now. Yeah. They also do that reality show, right? Are they involved in that? The Henson Muppet? Or um, not Muppet, but puppet creating show? Yeah. I mean, they have their hands in a lot of things. Like, I think that they even, like, contribute to... Like other show, I'm I'm gonna get this wrong, but like, you know, the Masked Singer and stuff like that. Like they, they oh ha- sure, I think they have their hands in still creating a lot of you know prop type stuff. Yeah. Right, and so I, th- I outside, think they, outside of Muppets, I think they did the practical suits for the uh, the Where the Wild Things Are feature. Mm. I yeah, think they yes. did the Ninja Turtle suits yes. for those live action movies. Yeah, uh, uh, I really loved the TV series Farscape. Oh right, oh, yeah. um, and Brian Henson was a producer on that. Yeah. All right, I think that's everything for Great Muppet Caper. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Stripes which IMDb describes like so. Two friends who are dissatisfied with their jobs decide to join the army for a bit of fun. We leave you now with a trailer for Stripes. You're a bum! And that's all you'll ever be! A bum! Are you stuck in a dead-end job? Personal problems got you down. You can't go! All the plants are gonna die. I've lost my job, my apartment, my car, and my girlfriend. Well, the army can turn your life around. Oh, I knew it. She was walking next to me. Singing do what did it, did it, don't did it do. Join a whole new breed of professionals. Oh my god, my mama. <laughs> Learn what it's like to feel like a man. 
Get your body into incredible shape. Master important career skills. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? This. And this. <laughs> and represent your country in foreign lands. Chicago. <laughs> so if you're a man who likes to take charge of your own life. You're different. You're weird. You're a mutant. You're a killer. You're a trained killer. And this looks like your kind of challenge. So am I to understand that you men completed your training on your own? That's the fact, Jack! That's the fact, Jack! Join the wackiest group that ever put on a uniform. Gentlemen, this is the EM-50 urban assault vehicle and ride with them as they blunder across borders right, man, always get this thing moving come on you're dangerous you know that all right steady 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 we got one heavily armed recreational vehicle here man oh this is interesting Boom, chugga, like a boom, chugga, like a boom.